Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is the Secret Life of Canada, Crash Course, just a quick bite of history. So I've been wanting to share the story of Dr. James Barry on this podcast for a long time. Okay, what stopped you? Because all of the sources I found on him conflicted and seemed to tell very different stories. And then I realized I wasn't really confident on how to write about him either. Right, of course. And uh, who was he? Dr. James Barry was what we would now call trans, and he died in the mid-1800s when that term wasn't around at the time. So I wasn't sure how he would identify, and I wanted to make sure that I was being respectful and mindful. So what we know is James Barry was born in 1789, and he became a surgeon who served in the British military. He transformed a lot of medical practices while he was in the army. He eventually worked in Canada, where he became the inspector general of the all the military hospitals here. After he died, although it was against his wishes, an autopsy was performed and it was documented that his assigned sex at birth was female. Okay, you think somebody who was so respected would have their wishes respected? No, it was still like 18 whatever. So no, they didn't really do that. So all of this got me thinking... How do we and how should we look and talk about non-binary and trans people throughout history? My name is Aaron DeVore, and I am at the University of Victoria, where I have a position known as the chair in transgender studies. And we also operate the transgender archives and sponsor a series of biennial conferences called Moving Trans History Forward. So I asked him how we should all be looking at non-binary and trans people in early history. A lot is missing when you talk about people, you know, in the early 1900s and before. It's always a tricky question when you start to ask about trans history before a certain point, because who qualifies as trans before you actually have the language of transgender? So the word transgender really only came into common usage in the 1990s. Prior to that, we had the words transsexual and transvestite, but transsexual only came into common usage around 1950s, and the word transvestite was only coined in 1910, 1911. So who is trans prior to those words being there? And this is a big debate in history. It's also a debate in lesbian and gay history, who qualifies under different circumstances and different time frames to announce yourself as gender variant of any sort or sexually variant of any sort was to put your life in significant danger. Right. That makes sense. I mean, the danger was probably the reason James Barry wanted to protect himself, even in death, by not having an autopsy. Exactly. But so many people have written about him with terrible titles like a woman ahead of her time. 
Of course, there were women throughout history who disguised themselves as men for a couple of days or maybe a time period to get a job or do something. But their close friends, spouses and relatives knew they still identified as women and that they were playing a role being a man to get into a different world. That's not the case for James Barry. He was a man who lived his life as a man. Here's Aaron again. People can only live in the context that they live in. And so in other historical periods, the language we have today wasn't available. And I think that the people living today, again, can only live in their own context. And we do have certain language available to understand who people were in other times and other places. So when you see people claiming Dr. James Barry as a woman, as a heroine, what they are doing is they are uh, giving precedence to the biological sex assigned at birth and ignoring an entire lifetime of choices that Dr. James Barry made. I think it's important to respect those choices. And I think that everything that we know of James Barry's history says that the fact that he was born into a female body was certainly not something that was a priority for him in his life. In fact, it was something that he went through to great lengths to disguise and to keep from other people's knowledge because he knew then that what we see people doing today would have also happened then. As soon as someone knew that he had a female body, that the life he had built for himself as a man would be undermined and um, taken away from him, and that his identity as a man would be thrown into question and doubt and probably disregarded entirely in his time. Today we see people that go both ways. We see people who say, well, the fact that a female body is more important than anything else, we're claiming him as a woman. And we see people who respect his identity and the choices he made. I'm sure it was a very difficult life to uh, have to go through whatever he went through to make sure that nobody ever saw his body. And he even tried to control that at his death. But unfortunately, there was a person who did see his body and who made that information public. Right. And when we look at historical figures, we don't have them here to ask how they would like to be identified. So what do you think people should keep in mind when they're learning about people throughout history who one might define as transgender or gender fluid? We didn't have terms like that back then. Yeah, I asked Aaron the very same thing. When we look back for trans people in history, we have to be cautious about how we label them and what we assume about them. So most commonly what we'll look for is we'll say, is this someone who we think it's probable or likely that if they live today and had available to them the word trans, that they might have chosen to use that word for themselves? Another way that we might look at it is we say, well, we have certain criteria we use today to determine if somebody is trans. One is what they call themselves, but sometimes we also make um, decisions on behalf of other people and say, well, <laughs> we think they're trans. Uh, we might call them trans, but we have to be cautious about that. So when we look at someone like Dr. James Barry, what is the evidence we have that they might have called themselves trans if they had that word available to them? Well, we know that... James Barry went by a male name, James Barry, lived and dressed and 
presented himself in every way as a man throughout his entire adult life. We know that he requested that at his death, his body not be examined. So we have evidence that this person wanted to be known as a man, lived as a man, successfully lived as a man, and took effort to try to ensure that even after his death, nobody would have any reason to doubt that he was a man. So I think that that's fairly clear evidence that if he had the opportunity to define himself as a man and as a trans man in today's world, he might have done so. I'm going to say might because he was so profound in his commitment to uh, being a man, he might be the kind of person who today would call themselves a man of trans experience. So there are people who have um, gone through transition, uh, done all the medical procedures that they care to do, lived their lives as the gender that they identify as, and consider themselves no longer trans. They consider that an experience they had to get them to where they are today. Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points in miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, but I have one more question. Yeah, shoot. Okay, so you said off the top that there's transgender archives in Victoria, right? Victoria, BC. Yeah. And that's cool and kind of surprising. Like, yeah. No shade, Victoria, but how, like, how did it end up there? So Erin is the chair in transgender studies and is an expert in the field of transgender studies. So he was already working at U of Vic when he started the archive. So it's there really because he's there and it grew over time. It's now actually the largest transgender archive in the world. That's amazing. And I, I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah. OK, so how did the archive start and how, you know, how did it get so big? Well, he said it kind of started by accident when he was having lunch with a person by the name of Ricky Swin. And Ricky Swin had started a research institute in Chicago uh, with her own funding and had amassed a fairly large library and archives at this research institute. But things didn't work out the way she had planned. And she had recently moved to Victoria, which is why we were having lunch together. And I asked her what was happening with her research institute. She told me that she had closed the door and it was sitting there and she hadn't quite decided what to do with it, but she was considering moving it to Victoria. And I asked her if she would consider moving it to the University of Victoria. She said she would consider that, and that started negotiations that took a couple of years by the time everything actually arrived at the University of Victoria. Uh, so that was our first collection. It was fairly large, but we didn't consider it a transgender archives at the time. And it was just, it was not just, but it was the Ricky Swin collection. And after that, they got another collection from the family of Reed Erickson, who was a philanthropist and a trans man who had really been active kind of in the 1970s and early 1980s. Aaron had worked with his family on his biography for a number of years, and then they got in contact. And he said, 
Those were the collections that started the ball rolling. At that point, we started to think of ourselves as having a transgender archives. And another collection that was important in more in Canada was a collection that came to us uh, called the uh, Zenith Collection. And it was the work of a person by the name of Stephanie Castle, a trans woman, also now deceased. But she was still alive at the time the collection came to us. And uh, she had uh, run the Zenith Foundation in Vancouver, and she also donated her records to us at the University of Victoria. So by the time we had those three collections, we thought we had a transgender archives. And we announced it to the world in the fall of 2011 at the meetings of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And it has just continued to grow since then. I am so nerdily excited about this. I want to go there. It's very exciting. He told me the archives are so huge that if you spread it out on a shelf, all the material would span a football field and a half. So there's a lot in there. If you can't make it to the archives in person, because obviously many of us can't right now, you can check the archives out on Instagram, Twitter. And if you're interested in supporting the work of the program, you can also visit them at their website at www.uvic.ca slash transgender archives. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.